Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Chris, we got so much. Normally, we try to, like, chit-chat, you know, first, but I feel like we should just dive right in. Well, I want to ask you, I do want to ask you one question. Yeah. You were recently on an airplane. And I was. You are now a visibly pregnant lady. <laughs> are dudes more courteous and helpful to you now in travel settings and situations than before you were a visibly pregnant lady? Um, it's a good question. Definitely people are nicer to me. Good. For sure. Like, Did you have an overhead bag? I, yeah, I was going to say, like, offering to put my bag up. and But it's not just on in, on airplanes. I was in a bar in New York, like, you know, a few weeks ago. I was less visibly pregnant. But uh, this woman was like, oh, take my seat. Take my seat. I actually wanted to stand up. And the other, the other funny thing that happened was my husband and I were walking into a Nats game. And we're, like, going through the security. security yeah, yeah. And the security guard, she's like, ma'am, are you pregnant? I said, yes, I am. And she's like, you cannot walk through that metal detector. And she took me around, like, let me bypass the metal detector. So then I said to my husband, I've never heard this, actually. That and magnets? Like, it, well, it, yeah, it's like, it's like totally fine. That it will make your baby so, fall off the edge so, you of know, the ladder. Was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that was pretty good. I, the, the last time I flew, there was a, a, a woman who was trying to get. Now, of course, there's a separate line of discussion here about 85-pound women who pack 90-pound overhead bags that they're. I'm actually a very light packer. I, I never have enough. Well, also, you're. Clothes weigh approximately seven ounces. Like you can pack a whole bag that would be like one dog. suit. Yeah, exactly. For what? For me. Sadly, that is not the case. But the so this woman has got this bag and she's like trying to grab with it. And I am in the the window seat and I can't get out. And I finally say to the guy next to me, I'm like, "Are you going to help her?" And he was like, "Oh well, I didn't know if I was like go help her out." It's like guys of America, and this is a longstanding thing for me. Help them. Help women with their bags. Uh, hold doors, be courteous and gentlemanly, be respectful. If if someone doesn't like it, what's the worst thing that can happen? They could be a little offended or they could say no thank you and you will get on with your life. But please err on the side of being courteous. It actually is hard to put the overhead bag. It's impossible. Right. It, uh, if, if you're if you're 5'2", you're not going to be able to deadlift. Well, your balance is kind of yeah. off. So the best, too, is I when I when I get home. I just leave my suitcase at the bottom of the stairs. <laughs> my yeah. husband. My husband you prob you pro you'll probably keep doing that after you're pregnant. Yeah, no, I did. Yeah. Like <laughs> you're a uh, fine man, Patrick. You're a fine <laughs> man. And yesterday he like ran down to like, I, I didn't think he'd be home. So I was just going to leave it there. And he like ran down to get it and <laughs> delivered it right next to my bed upstairs. If mama ain't happy, ain't yeah. nobody happy. Yeah. Love you, Patrick. Okay. <laughs> so on our front page this week. Chris, we got to talk about Gruden. That have to. His name? Want to. Like, have to. Have to. I don't even, never heard of this guy before, so. So John Gruden is, I think I would say the, is he the zenith of the dirtbag bro? He was, he was at the right 
franchise to be with the now Las Vegas Raiders. So he was at the... He has a checkered history throughout his... At the Washington football team, or... I, I don't remember his whole thing, but I remember, like... He, he anyway he 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 has he has serious frat bro energy as a coach and he was much sought after by the always terrible Dan Snyder organization at the Redskins and while he was an ESPN analyst and they were trying to hire him he was exchanging emails with the head of football operations for I think that's right for the I guess now we call them the the Washington football team. Yeah, the former president. The Wooft. And he was exchanging emails with the former former president of the Wooft that were caught up in the NFL's investigation into the various misconducts that have taken place in Mr. Snyder's organization. And so round one of the story comes out, and round one is that he used a really gross rate derogatory racial stereotype to refer to the lips of round one appeared where round one was first in the wall street journal okay yep and the uh, talking about the size of this african-american man's lips in an email to this other dude and that story came out and it was like there was a pause it was like this and i'm like well surely he's dead right surely the raiders are going to have to get rid of a guy who talked about the size of this players union leaders lips and it was then nothing happened but then as the new york times got in the play and got a hold of a bunch of emails in which he used a an uh, the other f word that a, a derogatory term for gay men to to refer to the roger goodell the head of the nfl and before you even continue yeah i was prepared to have my reaction to this be like Oh, this is overblown, you know, whatever. Then I go in and read the emails, and I'm like, oh, these are really bad. Well, this is really bad. So he, so he used that F word to refer to Goodell, and then he also used the P word to refer to him and said all this stuff. So when that stuff came out, then he was done, right? Those emails came out, and he was done. What was your, what's your, what's your, what is your, what is your takeaway? Uh, it's interesting. I did think the emails were really bad and genuinely offensive and display that I don't know if this guy's smart or not, but it's like you just don't as as a matter of self-preservation, you just don't put stuff like this in writing. Well, certainly we know by now, right? It's not that uh, certainly we certainly we know by now. It's cause that's that's bad. But the other thing is he's referring to his bosses. Yeah. People senior to him in the league, which is itself, it's like they could have found stuff that wasn't offensive. And still, you know, it's probably not best practice to to call your boss clueless anti-football puh. Uh. And so not good. The thing that did, and I know I'm going to like have a what about moment, okay? Just forgive me. All right. I anticipate that for the rest of time, anytime this guy's name comes up, it will be the... You know, John Gruden, the author of racist, misogynistic texts, yep. homophobic texts. And I just didn't, you know, Hunter Biden uses the same offensive terms mm -hmm. and is clearly uh, his, his sexual practices, I think, might indicate he doesn't have the utmost respect for women, his mm -hmm. documentation of those practices. And the mainstream media, like, didn't really cover the the racial and sex aspects of these emails and i assuredly hunter biden will not be referred to as the racist hunter biden. hunter biden will probably not be referred to period i doubt that i, I think that hunter biden will 
uh, never know the celebrity of Jimmy Carter's brother, Billy. He will be a, he, he, he is, he, he now, I, by the way, did they ever, and I'm, before we leave this topic, there is one more thing I want to say about the Gruden thing. Did we ever get to, re, did Hunter Biden ever have his art show? He, yeah, he had it. Did That's he make, we talked about last well, I know we talked, but I don't I, know if he sold anything. Okay. Okay. He had it. We don't know the Explained result. It. But I want to say... We're never going to know the... Oh, that's true. I guess we'll know if they sold, just not who bought them. Yeah, we won't know who bought them. That's right. So Dave Chappelle got in trouble for a bunch of stuff that he said, as as per usual. Dave Chappelle got in trouble for a bunch of stuff that he said about the differences he saw between black the efforts for equality for black America and in the gay rights community and the uh, trans rights community. And I will just say, I will just say that the Gruden story a little bit backs up his assertion, which is Gruden gets nailed saying a shockingly like way out of way out of date, like night Archie Bunker era kind of racist trope about a adult professional black man in a in a in a, in a senior position. So he gets caught saying that and it's like, well, the NFL says, we'll see what's going to happen, da, 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 da. He says that that other F word and he is gone like within the day, like see you later. Insults his bosses. Well, also insults his bosses. But I will say that there there is uh, Chappelle is there's there is evidence around to support his position. And I thought that the, the rush to condemn Chappelle and how eagerly so many outlets put forward articles like. The real problem with it, like you've gone too far now, and the coverage of the fact that people are going to walk out at Netflix over whatever. It's like, give me a break. All right. For once, I'm on like the soft side of the issue. Whoa. Yeah. I did think his joke was anti Semitic. I don't think he should be canceled. Which joke? He made a joke about space Jews. Uh, where he said, there are these people, like, they go off to another planet. And, of course, I'm going to butcher it because I don't have his talent. But they go off right. to another planet. They decide to come back to Earth and, like, take ownership of everything and run everything. And he said, yeah, it's called space Jews. And I, I, I I remember the joke. It's like, okay, I, I did think it was anti-Semitic. I don't – I'm not right. protesting that. Right, exactly. I'm writing about the problem with Dave Chappelle. But I did I did think it You was didn't like that joke. And I don't I, – I, I didn't I, like that joke. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. Um. All right. Do we have two football? We have two football-related items. This is our. This is it. You're about to introduce it. Oh yeah. Sorry. Okay. Katie Couric editing her, admitting to editing her interview with Ruth Bader Ginsburg to protect the dementia-ridden elderly RBG Elvit, who said, "Thank God she was there." Yes. Should not kneel for the anthem. It's disrespectful. But the thing that jumped out. Okay, that's ridiculous. Well, you got to you got to you got to tell him what she said. His name was Colin Kaepernick. The uh, year you you say what she said, and then I'll move on. In when the Colin Kaepernick, Katie Couric interviewed Ruth Bader Ginsburg as the Colin Kaepernick kneeling for the national anthem controversy, which Donald Trump rolled around in like a dog in a dead deer, and that became this huge national controversy, and was this the starting point for so much of this discussion. What did what did Ginsburg say? We we find out in Katie Couric's book that she said, "I want to get I want to get the she quote." She said it's disrespectful of your grandparents and your ancestors and people who fought for freedom in this country to kneel during the anthem. Basically. She said she said the correct, truthful. Th- she said the honest thing, which is you're not going to attract people to your cause 
by disrespecting yeah. the national anthem. That's not going to cause Americans to go, hold on, tell me more. And it is interesting, like the protests, the social protests that have been most effective have harnessed like the Ameri- American ideas yes. that you need to apply them to us rather than saying like the country is irredeemable. But, but. Here's the quote. Would I arrest them for doing it? No, she told Couric. I think it's dumb and disrespectful. I ha- I would have the same answer if you asked me about flag burning. I think it's a terrible thing to do, but I wouldn't lock a person up for doing it. I would point out how ridiculous it seems to me to do such an act. So Couric cuts it out. She has the common sense position. She, she has the normal, I would say, a, the very American position, yeah. which is, you know, uh, my country right or wrong, when it's right to be kept right and when it's wrong to be put right. And that's what we're, the, this is the common endeavor that we're engaged in. But the fact that Katie Couric thought that it, the right thing to do was to cut out what would have been the single most newsworthy yeah, totally. part of the interview is crazy to me. Uh it is not the first time she has done this, and I'm linking in our show notes to the Free Beacons report. The first time she did this, she deceptively edited footage from a documentary to make gun activists look stupid. So the documentary, she says, if there are no background checks for gun purchasers, how do you prevent felons or terrorists from pur- purchasing a gun? And then she puts in like a nine-second silence that didn't happen. Though raw audio that the activists then provided to the Free Beacon way back when uh, had them, you know, answering the question. The the lionization of Ruth Bader Ginsburg is understandable given her achievements, given her career. Absolutely. The 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 movie they made about her on the basis loved, of sex, I loved. loved I thought it was great. Uh, and the documentary. Yeah. But this, okay, this Katie Kirk thing, it, to me, was a demonstration of this is why. She was like the queen of the media you yep. know, when I was growing up. This is why people don't trust the media. It's because it's exposed. The Dan Rather thing, now this, now we see like they what they are really about is making their political friends look good and their political enemies look bad. And we and saw the like new Gallup. That is why there's so much distress. We saw the new Gallup poll numbers on media trust levels. Yeah. And it's down to basically, the, it's it's not a good sign when. Something like 70% of Democrats say that they have trust and confidence in the media, but only 31% of independents do. And now basically no Republicans do. There's 7 or 8%. And I think two things. Number one, all that you say is borne out in that by what's going on uh, and, and what you see there. But the other thing I would point out is we need to have a more, we need, we need to keep growing into a more sophisticated understanding of the media that it's not one thing anymore and that it's a lot of things. We'll get there in my obsessions, I think. Mm-hmm. But a couple of New York Times articles on critical race theory jumped out at me this week. The first is a long, long story about a Maryland superintendent who said Black Lives Matter and the controversy that ensued. Okay, like the story is a story. But their explanation of what critical race theory is also demonstrates to me why these people have no idea that this issue is going to come back to bite them because they're mischaracterizing the issue. So the Times states this fact that the term critical race theory is now often deployed to attack any discussion of race and racism in American classrooms, pitting educators who feel obligated to teach the realities of racism against predominantly white parents and politicians who believe that schools are forcing white children to feel ashamed of their race and country. All right, let me play devil's advocate. Uh, What's What's wrong with that sentence? Because I don't think that the term is deployed to attack any discussion no, no. of so, race and race. Look, I, 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 so is often deployed. 
So I agree that the often is doing a lot of work there. Yeah, I don't. Not even a majority of the time. Pitting educators who feel obligated to teach the realities of racism. Like, where, show me, like, where are the parents objecting to teaching the realities of racism? It's just that those realities are contested. Well, I, I would say I would say that we, I'm sure if we had uh, the power, we could find some instance where, I'm sure if we had the resources right now in this conversation, we could find a case where a teacher was trying to do the right thing. And I know there are some instances like I was just trying to teach about the Civil War. And then a parent came in and said they didn't want their people, kid to know about people, the Civil people War. and people. I'm sure that there are some teachers in Alabama and Texas who might have some thoughts about the limits on curricula and all that stuff. And but I don't disagree with the that the the characterization here is, is overly tendentious, broad. tendentious characterization that I think misses the real clashes are between like. What should we be teaching about racism? Should we be teaching that it's systemic or should we be teach like, yes, it is controversial to teach um, the idea of systemic racism and that and white privilege and et cetera. That is not. I'll do I'll do you one better. Why are we having a national conversation about this? This is not a national issue. We have local and state control of schools for a reason. And people will be better educated in some states and worse educated in other states. And some states will have these problems and some states will have those problems. I know federalism is not a, a, a panacea. It doesn't, it doesn't solve every problem. But I will tell you, having a stupid national discussion about critical race theory in schools, that doesn't fit anywhere, right? It doesn't because it understates what's going on in radically left places, I'm, you know, what, whatever is going on in uh, Portland, Oregon. And I'm sure it rat overstates what's happening in most places. It's just dumb. And national education discussions, unless you're talking about what is happening in individual places, is totally mis it's misplaced in it. And it's part of this thing that is our clickbait culture where people want to be angry about what somebody else is doing somewhere else. Well, all right. So the other headline that I loved from The Times was about the Virginia gov governor's race. The headline is the unlikely issue shaping the Virginia governor's race. And it, it is about education and critical race theory, et cetera. It's like, this is only unlikely if you work at the New York Times. If you're a normal person, of course, like one of the main issues is, and I think this is what Republicans expect. One of the main issues is, are your kids' schools open? Do they have to be masked in schools? What are they learning in schools? But, you know, caught the Times by surprise. Can I, can I say something about the Virginia gubernatorial race and coverage of that in general? which is surprisingly close. It's surprisingly close. Why, why would you say it's surprisingly close? Virginia is 45, 47% Republican consistently in election after election. And you see polls that's, I'll put it this way. I don't, I give uh, Glenn Youngkin and I said- No Republican has been elected there in 10 years, right? Well, I, and I said this, I've said this for a long time. Uh, and I said it in the summer. If, if Joe Biden's approval rating is closer to 40 than it is to 50, which it is by by depending on what you're looking at, but certainly in the average, it's under 45. Then Glenn Youngkin has a chance in Virginia. He doesn't have a high probability of winning, but is it one in five? Is it one in four? He has a, he has a shot at winning. But the coverage of this that it's somehow surprisingly close. Virginia is yes a democratic state in which you are quite right that the Republican has not won statewide. But Ed Gillespie got 48 percent of the vote running for Senate when Mark Obenchain ran for attorney general. He lost by like 600 votes. So this is being a little mischaracterized on both sides because Democrats are we like a good race. Yeah, we like a good race. We like a good race. Okay. And the I think the idea that it's being nationalized to say like, oh, Democrats are in for it. And I think correctly, like if 
but there's there's outsized attention to we got to watch this because then we're going to know what's going to happen in the midterms. And Samantha, Samantha will tell how and how many of the gubernatorial races in Virginia in the out of the past 11 has the Virginia gubernatorial election been predictive of the direction of midterms? Nine. Yes. So yes. it's a great bellwether. content that we spoke about on Megyn Kelly's podcast. Continue to tune in here. Uh, oh, my God. Oh, my <laughs> let's go, gosh. Let's go to Sanjay. Sanjay Gupta. All you. All you. Sanjay Gupta treated us to a very lengthy, very lengthy explanation of why he likes to be famous. Sanjay Gupta went on for, I kid you not, three hours to talk to Joe Rogan about horse dewormers and vaccines and whatever else. So, of course, he was criticized by an the anti-Joe Rogan forces of the Internet for doing that. And then the pro-Joe Rogan forces had things to say. Everybody said things. So as a per how because it's so weird that as a CNN correspondent, you would go on, you would want to go on to the biggest podcast in America. Well, that has to be explained. Well, I. It, uh, Sanjay Gupta loving to be famous needs no explanation to me. I he has loved to be famous for a long time. No, have us on. I'm I'm here and available, I, and I won't even write a CNN article explaining why we decided to go on your podcast. But it's it, the the idea that he that he wants to defend it and say that this is good, blah 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 blah. Give us give us a break. It's if you want to be a fame ball, be a fame ball, but don't act like you don't don't be so sanctimonious about it, please. Yeah, uh, can we just do the quote? He says, so I realized that if I was serious about trying to communicate public health, I needed to go to a less comfortable place. I needed to go into the lion's den and accept an invitation to sit down with Joe Rogan for more than three hours. I mean, unless I, I mean, unless Joe Rogan smoked him out while he was there, unless he unless he passed so the going vape on over. The biggest podcast in America. This was really hard for him. It was a sacrifice, but he's doing it all for public health. I'm just so grateful we have public servants like this. He uh, he gives and he gives, yeah. he gives and he gives and he gives. <laughs> so here is the Washington Post. And I I'm getting pretty frustrated with how bad the Washington Post has become. It's a pretty it's bad. It's getting pretty bad out there. So here is uh, a piece by Annabelle. And I'm sorry if I mispronounced her name, but the lead is. I spent 15 years pretending to be a white guy. <laughs> so she tells the story about how she was the food critic for the I want to for the news press of Fort Myers, Florida, where my dad used to go in the winter for uh, school because he had scarlet fever. Shout out scarlet fever survivors. Very, it's a very niche podcast. But he uh, she writes this piece about how she got to be the food critic for there, and the food critic has. Uh, wrote under a pseudonym, and she wrote under the pseudonym for 15 years. Now, to talk about the how far we've fallen in terms of our cultural standards, the joke is that the food critic, and she was not the first of these, that she was only one in a long line since 1979 to write under this nom de plume, which is Jean Leboeuf, Le which is French for John the Beef. So Jean Leboeuf is clearly a joke. No one thinks that anyone is named who is the uh, the media the food critic is named Jean Leboeuf. It is a joke poking fun at fussy French culture. So she says, "quote I liked being a French dude, perhaps because I'm not at all a French dude. I'm a half Filipina, half Yugoslavian slash English slash Canadian. And what's a Canadian anyway? 
uh, woman born one year after Leboeuf was created in the same place he was created, a city name for a Confederate colonel. Dun, dun, dun. So she goes on and just writes forever. She just writes forever. And she talks about how she loved doing it because it connected her to her father who died when she was young. It was all very beautiful. She seemed to under, she was like, she, she it was like she was standing at the edge of, of getting it, but then could not get it at all because she says that the, she was given all this privilege because people thought she was a white man. No one thought you were anything. <laughs> Your name was Jean Leboeuf. No one thought that. So she says that she's thinking about how all the consequences of all of this and all of these things. And she said, I was afraid that if people knew who I really was, the terrible things they'd say, why don't you stick to Asian food, do all this stuff? So she ruins Jean Leboeuf for the newspaper and for everybody, this cute little tradition that they had uh, there in Fort Myers, Florida, and ruins it for everybody so that she can live out loud and have more attention for herself as a partially Canadian woman writing in Florida in a town named for a Confederate general. And she does all this. And you, and here's the, the part that makes me the most just cuckoo about this. What did she find when she ruined it for everyone and came out as herself? Nothing. Nothing happened. People were really nice to her and it was fine. And she and it none of the things that she was afraid would happen. And she was like, it was really great that I came out. And hi, Annabelle. I didn't get hate mail. People wrote, thank you and great job. So you were right before that they would have been racist before. But now that you have undone Mr. Leboeuf and destroyed the fantasy of the Leboeufian fantasy, that you are now not attacked. It's just it's one of the worst things. I just it's preposterous. Uh, Sorry. I, I, uh, <laughs> Sorry. Should we talk about Tucker on the Fox vaccine mandate? Go for it. To cynical authoritarians like Joe Biden and the ghouls around him like Susan Rice, that just can't be genuine. They assume the people you see on Fox News must be pretending. Pretending for money or prestige or ratings or something else. But they are wrong. We are not pretending at all. It's real. So Joe Biden has said all these places that... Uh, he's praised workplaces with yeah. vaccine mandates and even Fox News. Even Fox vac News. Vaccine mandate. And that's not quite right. They, you have to be vaccinated or submit to daily testing and you have to put your information on. Which is what the, which is what the Biden, which the, uh, the uh, uh, unconstitutional Biden business mandate requires. Is, is it daily? You can get out. It's testing. It's, it's testing or. But anyway. Okay. Anyways, so Tucker, well, you can characterize what Tucker said. Well, he 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 spoke to these issues and said, yes, while it is true, and he said to cynical authoritarians like Joe Joe Biden and the ghouls around him. Oh, actually, we could just play the sound. Let's go. Hit it. So I guess what I, what I would say is, it's a business, baby. Like, it, Fox News makes a lot of money. I'm, I don't doubt that Tucker Carlson has sincere stuff about the vaccine or whatever else, but of course it's making money, right? It's, of course it's prestige. Of course it's ratings. They're not, it, it's not happening just, it's not an eliomocenary activity. And the other thing what I was. What's that word? Eliomocenary. Whoa. Uh, we got, we got, we got high end. Not only do we want to talk to scarlet fever survivors, we also. Eliomocenary. Eliomocenary. An activity undertaken for beneficent purposes. Okay. It's not profit oriented. 
Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's good. I love it. We got uh, we got jokes. Okay. Washington Post. This is the sort of neutral coverage we go to the Post for. That's uh, right. Headline like, you've decided to quit Facebook. Here's how to migrate your online life somewhere else. It is instructions on how to basically boycott a platform they find troubling. They have one disclosure in it, which says that one of the things that the Post says you can do to escape Facebook, that if you can, escape Facebook, if you can't. I'm here to. I'm here to tell you, Facebook makes it really hard to, yeah, to just, delete it's your... It's really presenting you the pro and anti. And I, I will tell you, not having a Facebook account is great. I love not having a Facebook account. I like it every day. And the way they talk about it is that Facebook controls you and owns you, and here's how you break free. I could just as easily write a piece that was like, the Washington Post bundles together local sports coverage, weather, and traffic for convenient use of the people. But here's how you could get, though, you could break free of the Washington Post stranglehold over your life. Here's how you, it's like, if you can't tell people how to unsubscribe, like, whatever. But my, my, my little journalistic quibble is, they have a disclosure in there that Jeff Bezos owns, Amazon owns one of the platforms that they say can help you escape from the hellscape that is Facebook. But the, the disclosure it's actually missing is they, the, they're real competitors with Facebook really, 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 and working hard, the newspaper industry, which I say good for them, but the newspaper industry is working hard to try to end Facebook. They're pressuring. All of this stuff is part of a concerted back and forth battle between content providers and Facebook and all this stuff. And it's just, give, you know, give me a break. My favorite headline of the week. Chris, <laughs> we're going to get to our obsession. Was this New York Post article on Brian Laundry, who's the still at large boyfriend of Gabby Petito. Large indeed. Yeah, and, uh, and the New York Post headline is Brian Laundry was reportedly an overweight social outcast in high school. It's like... I might thought was who among us was not an overweight That's right. social outcast That's right. in high school. Uh, we're not all finding the fame same, of Ryan Laundry. Same, but... same, same, same. And then you want to talk about I just want to give a quick plug yeah. for this, like a, par a partial plug for the piece in The Atlantic, if, if you anybody hasn't seen it. What we lost when Gannett came to town. It was out a couple weeks ago. Really, it's just a, as we think about the importance of restoring local news, the finding a way to make local news profitable and finding a way for people to get stop thinking about what people are learning in other school districts and start thinking about their own, for example, as just one potential topic. This piece is a really nice encapsulation about what happens when you lose uh, local like news. Show notes. Yeah, it was good. Okay. We, it is now that time for our obsessions. The things we could not stop thinking about this week. Chris, over to you. I want to, this is feathering my own nest a little bit here, but I have to say, Jonah Goldberg, my friend and colleague from the dispatch, or as my youngest man child calls it, El Dispacho, is started an interesting conversation about what conservatives ought to do about a populist Republican party, a Trumpified populist Republican party. He wrote in his LA Times column and he followed up with it in his G file at the dispatch. You're linking that in the show notes. And- Here's, I, I'm obsessed with love because a great thing happened. Jonah wrote this piece and he gently, respectfully criticized Bill Kristol and some others, the Lincoln Project, less gently, but, but criticized those who have basically said, 
Republicans have to, the conservatives must support Democrats and Joe Biden in order to prevent Donald Trump from taking power and turning us in, you know, for this to be the Reichstag moment, da, 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 da. And Jonah said, I don't think that's the way to go. I think a better way to go would be to start an intentional spoiler party that went and targeted these kinds of J.D. Vance-ite election stealers in races to give conservatives a place to park their votes to punish Republicans. And that's all the point of the party is, not to become a new party, but just a, a, a basically a, an Assassin's Creed party that just goes out to, to target these kinds of candidates. I take no position on uh, whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing to do, but it's a very interesting question. And an amazing thing happened. Well, uh, go ahead, go ahead. An amazing thing happened. Uh, the National Review, uh, several folks, uh, Charles Cook and others at the National Review, took it up talked about it in, again, respectful, healthy, grown-up terms, uh, did that. The bulwark kind of did a little bit, but not, you know, but there was an honest... Uh, the bulwark got a little defensive about being characterized as Trump-obsessed. No comment, but the... Like, no, but we covered this, this, right. this, this, this other thing. But but mostly res a mostly respectful discussion took place about an interesting idea that came into the space. And one of the reasons I joined the dispatch is that I think that the right side of American media needs to grow up, right? It's dunking on libs. Owning libs is great. Talking about what's wrong with the, the left is, is great, right? Knock yourselves out. But more substantive conversations need to be had about what's wrong with the right and what to do about it. And I'm just, I'm very proud and pleased to be part of that. I'm very proud of what happened at National Review and what other, like, to have this respectful conversation tells me that... After a period of time where Fox News was so dominant on the right side, and really that that was where the old, kind of where all the dis, all roads led to the same place, there's uh, there's a little diversification. I think the Free Beacon can uh, be part of the 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 the, the maturation. Do something different. Yeah, the maturation of right side media is a nice thing to watch. All right, my obsession is also a little bit feathering my own nest, but but not quite. Chris, I feel like one of the major stories in the country today are like the woke excesses that we're seeing and they are all local stories but they're happening all over the country and it's become a beat that i'm like i'm sort of surprised but yet not surprised that the mainstream media has not picked up on this beat because i can tell you like the stories do amazing traffic and it the coverage of these like stories is left on the cutting room floor for alternative media outlets. People like Barry Weiss, who's doing it on Substack and and for the Washington Free Beacon. Like these are stories that you would think the Times would be covering, but they're not. And some of the biggest news stories of the past week have come from these sources. Barry Weiss on her podcast had a story about the cancellation of the uh, University of Chicago professor Dorian Dorian Abbott who was supposed to give a lecture at MIT, canceled because he advocated for merit-based admissions. That um, was such a stinker. Like, I, that, that's, that, that story, good, good on them, because that really encapsulated, for anybody who hasn't read it, basically, he wrote a piece for, where did he write it? I'm not even sure he wrote it. I think he just advocated for. But, but, uh, but basically pointed out the, the, the controversial but obvious problems related to affirmative action kind of admissions and what these things do and that, you know, how the problem with equity over equality, normal mainstream kinds of things. And he is a global warming expert and was there to give a talk about global warming. 
and they tried to cancel him for a, a totally normal, respectful thing that he had said. It was, you can disagree with him, but holy crocono. Uh, yes. So that came from Barry Weiss. The other one that came from Barry Weiss was the Gordon Klein lawsuit against UCLA. What's that? Um, he is a professor at UCLA. I believe it's their management school, but let me just double check that. And he, yeah, he's an accounting professor at the, at the school of business at UCLA. So he teaches financial analysis, law, public policy, and a white student in his class approached him and said last or two springs ago, yeah, two springs ago in May 2020, said on behalf of, you know, we, but an unspecified we, want our our African-American classmates to be, to be like exempted from the final exam or graded like what? stringently. Yeah, so this is a white student coming to ask. And he said, so since he replied. <laughs> That's not patronizing yeah, he replied at all. and said, so what should I do about someone who's half black or someone who's from Minneapolis but is white? Because What if it was traumatic for them? Yeah. And, he, and he basically said, buzz off. Like, we're giving yeah. the exam. Everyone has to take it. He ended up. What kind of professor? Now suing. He's in a professor at the business school. He's now suing what? accounting. So accounting we're we're going to make a we're going to make accounting subjective now jeez louise and that came from barry like that was amazing and then the beacon my colleague aaron sabarium had a piece on the disciplinary process through leaked audio from a student a second year law student at yale who is chastised for using the term trap house in an email well you a party invitation and i don't think we want to define terms here but yeah okay well trap house we've uh, we've gone too far already in this common, podcast common like i think it refers to a place where drugs are sold and he referred to his own apartment as a trap house i think there's a pro i'm gonna expose my age and pallor here but i think there also may be a prostitution overlay like a oh i don't i never is there that. not i don't know i never heard that feel free to email us at email us yeah <laughs> With, Wretched what's your podcast.com. Email us your definition of a trap house. To... Anyhow, the school ex essentially exerted enormous pressure on Will him you... to uh, provide a produce a written apology that they wrote for him. It was like so Stalinist, like a public confession. And it was unacceptable when he said, you know, if my classmates are offended, I'd welcome any discussion with them if they want to approach me. And then the response was, you can't make them do the work. Oh, boy. Et cetera. But like. I loved, I love you. This is why people are turning. You were the one who sent me this yeah. uh, piece about um, the St. Albans School in Washington, D.C. Oh, that was the, yes. Where where they have uh, new humor guidelines for those of you who will try to make jokes. We will punish you. Another beacon story, which is that the prestigious all-boys St. Albans School is considered Al Gore's alma mater. Yeah, and uh, and I saw Britt Hume tweeting about it because he also went there. Yeah, like all the, you know, privileged white kids went to St. Albans. And they're considering a disciplinary policy that includes even one-off instances of misplaced humor. Teen which, boys. Teen boys being yeah, I was gonna famous say, for their sensitive humor. Yes. I was going to say those, you know, my friends who've gone to boys' school are like, that's all they do at boys' school is misplaced the, inappropriate humor. I have, I, 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 I can speak to this. Yes. And the answer is yes. The, uh, but, the, but the idea that people are willing to pay seventy thousand dollars a year or whatever to have their children indoctrinated into this hot garbage and tells you why they, out. to tell be kicked out when to, they make a bad joke to tells you tells you that why the american elite is failing chris it's that time yeah it is chris's favorite time of the week where i say something nice 
And yours is Chris, and yours is really nice example. this week. It is. It is. Yours is not a bank shot where you say something mean by praising no, someone. No, it's not. It's not a. Not a bank shot. I like yeah. it. But mine is. I say it. S H I T. Yes. We're just we're gonna end up. This is a family friendly podcast. Ex- so one of the best things, the, the best some of the best experiences I've ever had as a journalist. Uh, are what happen along the uh, ones that happen along the way. Reed Epstein, Reed, I'm sorry, Reed Epstein covered Capitol Hill and politics, and he's a he's an excellent reporter. Worked at the Wall Street Journal. He's at the New York Times now. Just you know, uh, a very good, reliable reporter. And he wrote a piece. I am a, I am a John Boehner. I'm not quite a John Boehner level crier, but I am a I'm I'm a I'm an easy cry. And I had just dropped my sons off and I was waiting for church. I was sitting in my car waiting for church. And a friend of mine texted me this story. And it's the headline is 52 years and 11 days. A son facing death finds his father. And I'm getting choked up just even looking at it. I also cried reading it, but I'm a pregnant lady. Pregnant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like cried everything. So. But in that moment it was it was such a beautiful piece and Reed wrote such a good thing and he wrote it I I would love to know the backstory. We'll have to find out the backstory how he came to meet this guy who worked in a pretty high level in Washington, how he got the story, how he was given permission to go off his beat to write it. I'm so glad he was and just a great thing. So those serendipities of being a reporter. And then when you get a story like this, Epstein does the right thing, which is he lets it breathe. He doesn't tell the story. He lets the story tell itself and stays out of the way of it. And it's just really, really epically, toweringly good. My favorite is something that my dad sent me, actually, about Conan O'Brien's podcast network. And this is in the Wall Street Journal. We'll link all these stories in the notes. And it's a pretty, it's like a candid interview with Conan O'Brien about... How's his hair look in the picture? Let me... It looks awesome. Okay. Look at that. Where he says that he started a super successful podcast network. So um, do you listen to Conan O'Brien? I would, yeah, I'm not a regular listener, but I have listened and it's very good. I listen to every episode except for when they occasionally have politicians on. But I listen to every very, And he talks about how it's applicable to us. He was afraid that after doing, you know, being the biggest thing on late night television, he was afraid going into the podcasting world that people would view it as a sign of failure. And I thought it was like a really candid admission. But also, if you've had Conan's success, then this is a step down for you. If you're if you're Chris and me, like, you know, we're very happy. Speak for yourself. No, I kid. I kid. No. The what Sanjay Gupta should read this and learn from Conan O'Brien. The thing that makes Conan O'Brien endearing is that he can recognize his neediness, right? Yeah. He, he knows it. Well that's what's so good about the podcast. Yep. You get like real, I think like emotional and psychological insight into these re- super successful comedians. And and he does it by making himself vulnerable. The way that the way that it's a good interview is the fact that he is open and honest about the fact that he there was a they uh, they made a documentary which will make you both love and hate Conan O'Brien more called Conan O'Brien Can't Stop about how when he got fired from NBC, he was under a uh, contract. He had a non he couldn't do anything for 6 months or a year. So they decided, "Well, we'll just go and do a, a tour." And they can't stop us from doing that. And you're watching him put his friends and family through this horrible ordeal because he can't live without an audience cheering him on. And watching him go through it, you're like, I hate you for what you're doing to your wife and friends, but I'm glad that at least you're honest enough to know that it's pretty horrible. And uh, the podcast brings that same energy to it and always delivers uh, good laughs. That's all the time we have left. That is the news about the news. 
If you have a story that you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.